Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So you guys thought, somebody said, well, do you ever do things in the Old Testament? I'm like, oh yeah, I love the Old Testament. We try to do a lot. And so Ruth is where we're, where we're ending up. And so the question is, why study the book of Ruth? And so what I want to do before we even start tonight is I want to give us an overview. I want to give six primary reasons why I think it would be beneficial for us to study the book of Ruth. And actually, you could probably, if you wanted to sit down and read the book of Ruth, it takes about 15 minutes to read it. Depends on how fast you read. Depends on how fast you read. So, here's reason number one, why we're studying Ruth. First of all, historically, it has been regarded as one of the, if not the best, short stories in all of literature. Okay? Not just in the Bible, but in all of literature, a short story, the way it's masterfully written. Um, it's masterfully written by an anonymous storyteller who introduces us to intriguing characters. We don't know who wrote Ruth. The storyteller is anonymous. But it tells the story of three main characters. Naomi, Ruth, Boaz. And as you study the book of Ruth, you probably will understand that really the main character is not Ruth. The main character is Naomi. But even greater than that, the main character is God. Okay, so God's the main character of all these things. So when you look at Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, especially Ruth and Boaz, you see models of godliness. And in our culture today, especially for young people, I wish there were more young people in here tonight, there's really no clear model for Christians to look at that give us healthy models of what it means to be a godly man and what it means to be a godly woman. So you will see a model of godliness. Boaz is the prototype of a godly Christian man, and Ruth is the prototype of a godly Christian woman, and you have real-life examples coming alive on the page for us of that, okay? So that's reason number one. It's just a, a great, one of the greatest short stories of all time. Number two, it's a really good love story. Just for pure entertainment value, it has twists and turns. It's a powerful romantic story between two people who are facing tremendous odds. This story is going to draw you in the way that it's written. And again, there are so many worldly examples out there of romance and love, which in the end usually promote lust and infatuation. But this story gives us again a great model for how two committed Christians fall in love. Okay? So, it's a great story, just a great story, and it's a great love story, okay? Number three, it's the story of God's invisible hand of 
grace. If there's a subtitle that I would subtitle the book of Ruth, I would call it the invisible hand of grace. It happens during some of Israel's darkest times. And we're going to look at this tonight. It's a story that begins with extreme tragedy and ends with wonderful victory. The story starts with emptiness and barrenness and ends with fullness and new life. And here's the thing that happens. All throughout this story, God is sovereignly behind the scenes with His invisible hand moving things along towards His desired end. So, there are books in the Bible that teach doctrine. You can go to the book of Ephesians and you can learn about God's sovereignty. And that's fine. But what this does... The beauty of this story is that instead of reading a doctrinal portion of Paul's epistles, like we just did in Philippians, which teaches us theology of God's sovereignty, this story illustrates it with breathtaking drama. Okay? So it is a story of God's invisible hand of grace, His invisible hand. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Fourth, it is also the story of grace and redemption. The word redeemer or redemption shows up 23 times in this four chapter story. That's a lot of times to show up, redeemer. And one of the key words that shows up is chesed. All right, you're going to spit on your neighbor. So everybody all together say chesed. Thank you. You're an obedient group tonight. Yeah. Bless you. No, Hesed, we've, we've talked about this over the years. If you've been in Emmanuel, it's, one, it's probably the key word in the Old Testament. It means God's, un, what I wrote up here, it's God's um, tenacious covenant love that God shows in covenant faithfulness and loyalty to his people. So this is a story of how God provides redemption, grace, mercy to this family. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit. This is not in your notes, but I'm just, we're going to go there real quick because I think it's important, and you may want to just think about this. When you read, for lack of a better term, let's call this Hebrew narrative. When I use the term Hebrew narrative, basically, if this makes better sense, let me say Old Testament stories. I don't like to use the word stories because sometimes when you hear the word stories, what do you tend to think of? It's something that's fiction or made up. This is actual history. So they're not, they're, they're telling, so a narrative is basically, it's, it's, telling a, it's telling a historical situation that happened, okay? And it's being recorded for us. And so you've got these Old Testament narratives. Ruth is an Old Testament narrative. Okay, there are basically different levels of how you look at Hebrew narrative. There's what I call like the ground floor level. This is um, what's actually happening in the text with the characters. It's the story at face value. It's the story of Ruth. It's the story of Boaz. It takes place during the time of the judges. It takes place in Bethlehem. It's, the, it's the, what you would read in the, just the story. But there's also something else going on. How does this fit into Israel's 
story or Israel's history. So the second level is, okay, how does this story fit into the entire Old Testament? In other words, if Ruth were not in the Old Testament, would the Old Testament tell a different story? Yes, big time. So you have to see where does Ruth fit into the entire story of the Old Testament? Okay, then we jump out to the biggest level, the, the macroest level, and that's the the story of the Bible, the Bible story. Does the Bible tell a bunch of stories? And when I say stories, I don't mean fictions. Okay. Does the Bible tell a bunch of stories? Are they interconnected? Yes. But is the Bible a collection of Aesop's fables that are all disconnected stories? Does the Bible tell one story? Yes. The Bible tells one story from Genesis to Revelation, and that story is God's plan to save his people through Jesus. And so when you read Ruth or any Old Testament narrative, you've got to think, okay, I'm dealing with what's in front of me at the ground level. I'm dealing with the characters. I'm dealing with the text. I'm dealing with the, the historical issues there directly. I'm also dealing with how does this fit into Israel's history? How does this fit into the entire Old Testament? And then you jump back out. How does Ruth fit into the entire Bible story? How does it fit into the entire flow? And so these next two points show us how it fits into um, Israel's story and how it fits into the big story of the Bible. So fifthly, it's a great story that's crucial to the history of redemption, especially in the Old Testament. And what do I mean by this? God uses a Gentile pagan, Ruth, to bring about the eventual birth of King David, who would carry on the line of God's plan of providing the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. No Ruth, no David. No David, no Jesus. Okay? So if you take Ruth out of the Bible, it messes up Israel's story, doesn't it? Because you don't have King David. And it messes up the big story, you don't have Jesus. And so that's, that's the last issue here, number six. Finally, Ruth is a great story that has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We cannot... Read this story without seeing the ultimate fulfillment that through Ruth and Boaz, Jesus would come to not only provide redemption for Israel, but for the entire world. Okay, so we're going to see these over and over again, and I'll introduce those to you. Another thing I want to teach you about Hebrew narrative, and it's very, very important because it may sound redundant. When you read the Old Testament, what's one of the questions that you should be asking, or what, what, what tends to come up, or, or maybe you, you have this question... If you've read through your Bible, especially these Old Testaments, what's one thing you see all the time? Why do they keep repeating themselves? They'll say something, and then in the next verses, they'll say what they just said. Okay, I just read that. Why are they repeating themselves? Have you ever thought about that when you're reading the Bible? Why do they repeat what they just said? Here's the point. The primary thing I want you to remember is that Hebrew narrative or Old Testament stories were meant to be read out loud since this was an oral tradition. So think about it this way. A Hebrew mom is down at the river washing her clothes with her kids, and she's telling the story of Ruth to her daughters. Grandpa's got the Hebrew family around the campfire, and he's telling the story. Sometimes these stories were told before they were actually written down in the scriptures. So if you want to pass these stories along orally, what's a good convention to use for oral storytelling? Repetition. That's why you see things repeated. And 
Another thing that you also want to realize in Hebrew narrative is that the repetition is in the dialogue. The story is rich in dialogue. As a matter of fact, of the 85 verses in Ruth, 56 of them contain dialogue. What's dialogue? People talking back and forth. Okay? So dialogue is key to the story. What they say to each other is very, very important. Okay? Now, I'm not here to necessarily pick on Bible translations and say you've got the wrong translation because I'm not going to play that game. But I will put a plug in for this. Um, I think in doing the study of Ruth, I think the ESV, for this particular book, for Ruth, I think the ESV is probably the best translation. Not that if you have a different one, it doesn't matter. We all have different translations, and sometimes it's good to see how it's worded. Um, I just think the ESV does a good job in bringing out the wordplay. It brings out the Hebrew nuances that you don't quite get. You guys aren't versed in Hebrew. I don't expect you to catch the wordplay. But the ESV does a pretty good job of trying to bring that wordplay out in English so that you can kind of see it. And probably other translations like the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard probably will do that as well. Okay? So let's talk about the structure of the book. Look at your, look at your book of Ruth. You should have it open. How many chapters do you have? Four chapters. There's four acts to this drama. It's a four-act, I don't want to call it a play because it's not a play, but a four-act story. Okay? And within these four acts, there are three scenes. So within chapter one, there's three scenes. Chapter two, there's three scenes. Chapter three, there's three scenes. Chapter four, there's three scenes. So four, four acts, three scenes. Okay? That's the way that it is structured. So just for tonight, because I don't want to, I, I want us to, to really just dive into this, and we may get done early, but I just want us to look at Act 1, Scene 1, okay, which would be what? Chapter 1, the first subplot, which is Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now, in a good translation, normally it'll break that up with subtitles do you, or, or paragraph differences. Do you see verses 1 through 5 as a unit up by itself? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, the translators helped you see the structure of really how it works in the Hebrew text. So let's read Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 5, and let's, um, let's dive into this, okay? So here we go. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay. Historical context is key to understanding judges. What's the very first phrase of the book say? In the days when the... Okay, this has been really interesting because on Tuesday morning, and some of you are in here, 
Um, some of you men, Tuesday morning, we're studying the book of Judges, okay? So we're in Samson right now. And so I thought, it, okay, I've got a better appreciation for Ruth now that I've, we've studied Judges. So what I want us to do to understand Ruth, you've got to understand Judges, okay? You cannot understand the book of Ruth without understanding the book of Judges because right from the very beginning, the, the narrator tells you, in the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine. So you've got to ask yourself, what was going on during the days of the Judges? That's not an incidental bit of information. It's very, very important. So what I want us to do is I want us to go back to the book of Judges and see what was going on during the time of the Judges. So if they're right next to each other in your Bible, which makes it convenient. So go back to Judges chapter 2, and let me just give you a little bit of Israel's history, okay? I'm going to set up a historical context here. God gave a promise to Abraham. What did God promise Abraham? You will have the promised land. Okay? Well, Abraham never got to see the promised land. Isaac never got to see the promised land. Jacob never got to see the promised land. Joseph goes down to Egypt, becomes prime minister, and then the Egyptians end up, I mean, the, the Israelites end up settling in Egypt. And how long are they there? 400 years. They're under oppression. God raises up Moses. What does Moses do? Goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. You know the whole story. They cross the Red Sea. They get to the base of Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, reiterates the covenant. Then what happens? They send spies into the land, and the promised land, and two come back, Joshua and Caleb, and say, we can take it. And the rest say, no, we can't take it. And so they have an uprising. They want to stone Joshua. They want to stone Moses. The anger of the Lord kindles against them and says, okay, you guys are going to wander in the desert for 40 years and die off. And that's what happened. The whole book of Numbers is them wandering around. A new generation raises up because the younger generation died off. They're at the plains of Moab. Okay, They're about ready to go into the promised land. And Moses preaches three sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses dies. Who, who goes across the, the Jordan River? Joshua leads the Israelites across the Jordan River. What's the whole book of Joshua about? Conquering the different cities allocating the areas for the tribes. Here's the problem in the book of Joshua. Moses set up a successor to lead in his absence. Joshua does not. So when the book of Judges starts, there's no one to take the place of Joshua the way Moses set up for Joshua to lead when he was gone. And the Israelites did not drive out the land. So in the promised land... The Israelites have a lot of success. They're settling in their 12 tribes, but they're still these pagan ite nations, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all these different nations. They're still coexisting, and these are pagan nations. Okay? So in the time of Judges, Moses has died, Joshua's died, there's a new generation, and let's see what happens to that new generation once those two heroes have died. They're living in the land. Pick up in Judges, pick up in Judges, tap, cha, yeah, Judges chapter two, Judges chapter two, verse six. Okay, Judges chapter two, verse six. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, I dismissed the people. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What's the problem? A new generation... Joshua's dead. What does it say about this new generation? Now, think about that. They didn't know God. Now, you can't be an Israelite and not know God. They are purposely falling into idolatry. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going here. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. That's a strong word. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Things are bad, aren't they? They abandon the Lord. They forsake the Lord. They're going after Baal and Ashtaroth. Now, who are Baal and Ashtaroth? They're a cute couple. They're a Canaanite, they're a Canaanite male and female deity. Baal was the Canaanite fertility god, and his female counterpart was Ashtaroth. So Baal's the male version, Ashtaroth's the female, and so like there are these pagan gods that are married to each other. And... The Canaanites, the Ammonites, the, all these, these pagan, pagan nations hoped they would have good crops and livestock so they would go to the temple prostitute as an act of worship. So what is Israel doing? Instead of going to the temple of the Lord to worship the Lord, where are they going? I'm going to the temple to have sex with the prostitute to a pagan god. Is God going to be happy with that? What does it say? The anger of the Lord kindled against them. The Lord ordained for them to be taken over by plunderers. And so they're being taken over. And what does that verse, um, what, what does the end of verse 15 say? They were in terrible distress. Things are bad in Israel. There's a new generation. There is idolatry. There's sexual immorality. And there's just an abandoning of the Lord. Okay? So there's two major issues going on here. So look at verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices of their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because his people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer 
drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, men, that are in my Tuesday morning study, this passage is the prototype for the rest of the book of Joshua, is it not? You see that same pattern. Just insert different judge, different enemy, same problem. Okay? So here's the cycle in Judges. Let me just write it down here. And you'll see this over and over in the book of Judges. And some people call it a cycle. I call it a downward spiral. So you've got Israel. They're in idolatry. Then God ordains for them to be invaded or enslaved or militarily captive. And then they're in distress. So they cry out to God, get us out of this mess. And God in his grace raises up a judge. And when you think of a judge, don't think of a guy in a black suit like Judge Gorsuch being on the... It just means a military leader. Okay, So God raises up a military leader who leads the people to defeat the enemy. And then usually it says Israel was... The land was at rest for a certain amount of years. And that's usually how the chapter ends. And then the next chapter starts out, the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then this pattern goes over and over again. Okay? Oh, thank you, sweetie. She got me a marker. <laughs> so that's the pattern in Judges. Now, these, this very beginning chapter of Judges, chapter 2, it sets forth this prototype that you're going to see through the rest of the book. But here's the problem in Judges. Two, two major issues. Number one, Israel failed to be distinct and separate from the pagan nations around them. What did they do? They adopted the worship of the Canaanites. They went after Baal and Ashtaroth. They compromised. What does Romans 12, 2 say for us? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what's the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So you can learn a lesson from the book of Judges about holiness and distinction and how the Christian community, how we're to be different from the culture around us. They were not. They were very comfortable with the culture. Okay, so that's the first thing. They just blended in. They adopted the culture. They gave in to the idolatry. They were comfortable with the paganism. Number two, they failed to pass their faith along to the next generation. That's, I think that's one of the saddest verses right there, verse 10 of chapter 2. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. What have we just seen? The work He had done for Israel. Uh, passing of the Red Sea, manna, quail... Pillar of fire, water from the rock, crossing the Jordan River. I'm sure their parents told them these stories. So is this a lack of information or is this a refusal to bow down and worship God? It's not an issue of information. It's an issue of their heart. They knew God, but they chose not to follow him. And Ralph Davis, Del Ralph Davis, he's written, he's, the book of Judges, it's one of the commentaries I'm using for our Tuesday morning study. I really like the way he words things. Um, this is what he says about this issue. I really like what he says. Del Ralph Davis says, The Bible is clear. Amnesia produces apostasy. 
That is why the scripture is so frantic about the church not forgetting what the Lord has done for us. Amnesia produces apostasy. What's apostasy? Falling away. Turning away. What's amnesia? Forgetting. So we must continually... What, I, I challenge you. I don't even know how many... I mean, you probably get on a Bible program and do this, but go through the Bible and, and look at how many times God says, Remember. Remember. I don't know how many times it's a lot. Why do you think God would keep telling us to remember? Because we forget. Now, does it mean we, does it mean we forget who God is? What does it mean? It means we act like functional atheists. What do I mean by that? Well, we know who God is. We have all the facts. We know our theology. But we live as if we don't know God. We know God, but we live as if we've forgotten Him. And that's what's going on during the time of the judges. Now, when does Ruth take place? The book of Ruth just says, during the time of the judges. I, I've, I've looked at scholarship, and I've kind of done the math, and I've given my best guess. And I think most scholars kind of land on this. Most scholars suggest that the story takes place historically during the time of Ehud, because Israel was dominated by the Moabites during this time. Now, later on, they're dominated by the Ammonites, and then at the very end, by the Philistines. But early in the time of the judges, the Moabites are the ones. And so who's Ehud? Ehud's judge number two, after Othniel. So turn to chapter three of Judges. And I'm not going to read this whole story because it's kind of rated R. Um, there's a couple of, well, PG-13. Um, guys that are in my Tuesday morning men's study, is Judges pretty graphic? Yes. Yes. I debated whether I'd rather preach on Sunday mornings. We may have to have the kids leave. But um, I won't read all of this, but, well, I'll just tell you. How did, Ehud is a left-handed, I'll just tell you. This is exactly the story. I'll give you the paraphrase of the story. Ehud is the left-handed assassin who kills the fat king while he's sitting on the pot. Okay? And if you don't believe me, read the rest of chapter 3. So here we go. <laughs> You're like, what did he just say? Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, this is scary, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, the left-handed man. And then you read the rest of the story. How many years were the Israelites under Moabite oppression? 18 years. And then you find out that at the end, when Ehud wins and defeats, the land was at rest for 80 years. So you got a period of 98 years. So it could be, we don't really know. It could be during a period of rest after Ehud won. It could be during, all we know is that most scholars think it had to be sometime early in Judges because of the chronology and the history and possibly because of the Moabite connection. Okay. So either way you look at it, it's not a good time. The book of Judges is Israel's darkest time, probably right before the exile. Now, I want to look at a couple of other passages of Scripture in Judges. Look at Judges chapter 18, verse 1. 
This is towards the end. Judges 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no what? There's no king in Israel. Now, interesting statement in the book of Judges. In those days, there's no, there's no king in Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the kingship started yet in Israel? Who's the first king? Saul. So were the people looking for a king? With the exception of what was his name? Gideon, who named his son, my son is the king. And Abimelech is his name. Was it Abimelech? I'm trying to remember, guys. The one that they want to make him king in Judges. There is no king in Israel. Okay, so we have to ask the question, what does that mean there's no king in Israel? Does that mean that David's not ruling on his throne? Or what does it mean? Who's the king? The Lord. Now, does that mean the Lord is absent? No, but what does it mean? People are not acting as if the Lord is king in Israel. So it's a play on words. There's no king in Israel, historically not yet, but theologically there's no king in Israel. The people are acting as if God is not king. Okay, look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Okay, twice. In those days there was no king in Israel. Okay, chapter 21, verse 25. The very last verse of Judges. What's the very last verse of Judges say? Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book ends. How's that for closure? <laughs> There's no king. So, so two very important facts about how the book of Judges ends. We find out two very... Every, there was no king in Israel. There's no national leader to unite the people under the Lord. Theologically, the people are acting as if the Lord's not king. And secondly, what else do we find out? It was a time marked by immorality, corruption, and anarchy. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's no moral compass. And you turn the page, and Ruth starts. In the days when the judges rule... So just read these back to back. Okay, so just pretend like... Jud Ruth, Judges doesn't end and Ruth doesn't like, pretend like they're right together. So Judges 21, 25. In those, day, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So the book of Judges tells us that Israel is in its darkest days of grotesque immorality, of idolatry, of abandoning the Lord. And what are people doing? <coughs> Whatever's right in their own eyes. That's the world they live in. They are not acting as if they are God's covenant people. They are not acting like Israelites. They're doing whatever they jolly well please. So, this is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, and this is how the story of Ruth begins. In a time of chaos, anarchy, immorality, 
and idolatry. So don't just skip over that fact that in the days when the judges ruled, you can just start just skip over that fact and start the story and not think about, okay, what's going on here? It's a dark time in Israel's history. What's the second little bit of information that you have there? What's the second fact? In the days when the judges ruled, there was what? A famine. Okay, there's a famine in the land. That's important. That's not insignificant. What's a famine a significance of? Well, obviously a famine means they're going without food, but often in the Israelite mind, famines are a sign of God's judgment upon people. Who controls the rain? God has literally shut up the heavens and not provided for His people rain because of their disobedience. So, this is how the story starts. In a dark period in Israel's history, in a time of famine. In a galaxy far, far away. I mean, it's like, this is how you start a story. But it, it starts not in a, on a happy note. If you're an Israelite hearing this for the very first time, you're thinking, this is a dark, this is not good. It would be like saying it was a dark and stormy night. And, you know, how we have our conventions. It's Israel's darkest period in history, and it's a time of famine. Okay, what's the next bit of information you find out? And a man of Bethlehem. Okay, we have the setting, right? That's an interesting town, Bethlehem. We know that town, right? A little town of Bethlehem. Who was born in Bethlehem? Okay, who was born in Bethlehem? David. David. Okay, Jesus too, but got to go, go back in history. Okay, here's the irony, guys. It's a time of famine. The word Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means house of bread. And yet there's a famine in Israel. What's Bethlehem known for? It's the breadbasket of Israel. Bethlehem was an agricultural town known for wheat, barley, olives, and grapes. It was an oasis of agriculture, and now it is a dried-up house of no provision. Is it house of bread? House of famine. Due to Israel's violence, rebellion, and lawlessness during the time of the judges, Bethlehem is experiencing God's judgment through a famine. And where does the man and his family go? They went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Times are tough. You remember the Grapes of Wrath, the whole Dust Bowl story, John Steinbeck? Things are bad in Kansas and Oklahoma, so where do they go? They go to California, and they settle into the vineyards and the orchards of California. Maybe grass is greener on the other side. So the question then becomes... You look at that and say, okay, it's a famine. If I was a family and there's a famine, I'm going to go find a place for us to get food. Let's go to Moab. Before you think twice, or before you, before you think twice before you go to Moab, what's the significance of Moab? And why is this sojourn such an ill-advised, sinful thing to do? Mine says they went to sojourn. What does sojourn mean? It wasn't like they were going to go take a family vacation for two weeks. We're going to pack up our family and we're going to go miles, hundreds of miles to Moab 
because maybe the grass is greener in Moab and I'm going to go sojourn there. Now, where are they? Bethlehem. But more importantly, where are they? This is the promised land. God had provided the promised land all the way back to Abraham. They had conquered it through Joshua. And this is God's ordained place of milk and honey. If you are an Israelite, do you dare leave the promised land for the greener grass? This is a place that although there's a famine, it's still the promised land. No self-respecting Hebrew would ever leave God's country to sojourn elsewhere. Especially Moab. Now, at first glance, Moab was probably the logical place for them to go. It was east of the Dead Sea. It was a fertile plateau that was probably the breadbasket during this time. It was experiencing great abundance in crops. It was a place that regularly attracted famine refugees. Makes sense. Family, we're going to pack up and go to Moab. There's, we, we hear rumors that there's a breadbasket. There's food there. The grass is greener. They're, they're experiencing a bumper crop. Let's go. But yet... To seek refuge or to sojourn in Moab was both dangerous and sinful, for it was Israel's dreaded enemy and a source of seduction. Moab equals seduction. So, first of all, let's ask the question, okay, Moabites, Moab. What's all this Moabite stuff? Who were the Moabites? Well, go back to Genesis chapter 19. And let's read about how the Moabites started. So go back to Genesis 19. Because Moab is a place that was settled by the Moabites. All right, so go back. Remember Lot? Lot's who? Abraham's nephew. So in, in Genesis 19, verse 30. Okay, you guys ready? Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come in us, into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, and we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, the firstborn born a son, and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. How did the Moabites start? An incestuous relationship between a drunken father. Is that good? Some of you are looking like, whoa, that's not good. So from the very beginning of the Bible's mention of Moab, there, his birth is... 
under sinful circumstances. And notice how it says, to this day, they are the, the Moabites. Okay? In addition, if you go back to the book of Numbers, the women of Moab became a stumbling block in sexual immorality to the Israelite men. If you go back to Numbers 25, so, so guys, when you think of Moab, when you think of Moab, you need to think of incest, drunkenness, and sexual seduction. Okay? That's how, that's how Moab, Moab was born out of an incestuous relationship from a Duncan dad. And then the Moabite women. So when you think about Moabite women, immediately you need to think about the Moabite women being sexual seductresses. Because back in Numbers chapter 25, they were a snare to the Israelites. Remember Balaam the talking donkey? The king of Moab hired Balak to go curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. Nothing good is in Moab for an Israelite. Why would you go there? And God even pronounced a curse upon them in Deuteronomy 23, 3-6. No Ammonite or Moabite, no Moabite, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. And when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. What does God say about the Moabites? They're cursed for ten generations. Why in the world was this family wanting to go to Moab? Is there anything good in Moab? Why would you go to Moab? Why would you take your family? And then most recently, in the book of Judges that we just looked at, whether it takes place under King Eglon or after, the Moabites had oppressed the Israelites. For how long? Was it 18 years? So does this sound like a place to pick up, pack up your family and leave? Is the grass truly greener on the other side? Now here's another irony. We find out the name of the dad. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. Literally means my God is king. Hmm. How does the book of Judges end? In those days there was no king. We're introduced to the character of the story. His name is, my God is king. Interesting. In a land where there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, was God truly the king, the sovereign? Was God the ruler of Elimelech and his family? If God was king of Elimelech and his family, would he have risked leaving the promised land? No. Would a husband and a father whose God was king risk leaving the promised land, the house of bread, Bethlehem, to go to Moab where the grass was greener? Now you can understand the pressure this dad had. Let's just put ourselves in his shoes. If you're a dad, what are you thinking? I got to take care of my family. 
I got a wife. I've got kids. I got to pay the bills. We got to eat. We're in a famine. Maybe grass is greener on the other side. Maybe it will. Maybe it'll pay off. God will overlook it. He knows we have needs. He knows that we've got things to get taken care of. See, very often in life, we have those defining moments when you're faced with those big decisions, those big choices. What are you going to do? Most often what drives the deciding factor, if we're honest with ourselves, is comfort and security. We want the path of least resistance that will bring us the most happiness, success, and prosperity. And there may be nothing wrong with that unless it's outside of God's will. So, is Elimelech making the wise choice for his family? Is he living up to his name? Ian Duguid, he's a um, Scottish theologian, said this about Elimelech. The roads we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. So, here's the issue. Not only is there a famine in the land during this very tumultuous time in Israel's history, but this family decides to move. Have you ever moved to a new community? A lot of us have. There's stress. There's loneliness. There's culture shock. There are adjustments. So what's Elimelech doing? Packing up his entire family and going to Moab. When we moved from Texas to Colorado, I hated it. Okay, so when I was in eighth, uh, so like in between the summer of my eighth and ninth grade year, my dad got called as, a pa- as an associate pastor to a church in Colorado Springs. I had been with the same group of friends all through elementary school, all through middle school. I was president of student council in eighth grade. I was getting ready to go to the high school, probably start junior varsity as a freshman. Um, my whole life ahead of me, awesome youth group, awesome church. And then we moved to Colorado, and I hated it. That first year, I detested Colorado. I hated the mountains. And we lived in Colorado Springs, so that year we did everything touristy. Air Force Academy, Garden of the Gods, Seven Falls, Cheyenne Mountain Zoo, all these different things. And my parents, like, they always wanted to live in Colorado, so, like, it was Colorado Overdrive. And so I didn't want to make friends at school, I didn't want to make friends in youth group. And actually, my parents were so concerned with me that first six months that they thought I should go see a counselor because I was so bitter of having to move. And I eventually got over it. But um, think about just the stress and the bitterness and the loneliness of moving. And so that's what they're doing. And where are they moving to? A place they think is going to be good. A A place they think the grass is greener. But it's Moab. Okay, And then we're introduced to his wife, Naomi. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. Her name means pleasant, lovely. Remember that. Naomi means pleasant or lovely. The storyteller gives us a clue here about her name because names are important. It's not going to last long. Her name's going to, she's going to change her name to Marah, which means bitter. But the word Naomi means pleasant, lovely. 
That's what her name means. So it could be that her personality, oftentimes in the Bible, your personality or whatever is tied to your name. We don't really know, but it could be that Naomi had a very um, lovely, pleasant, she was a, a, a nice, outgoing um, woman that was fun to get along with. She was a, had a good disposition. Then we have the kids' names, her son's names. Um, Maclon and Kilion. Interesting names, okay? Maclon means little sick one. How would you like to name your kid that? The kid comes out, hey, little sick one. Kilion means annihilation or the one who comes to an end. Literally the one who is finished. So, does that tell you a little bit about, okay, so what's going to happen to sick and annihilation? What's going to happen to these two boys? What's going to be their fate? Who knows? That's just like, like the, so, so you don't know that when you read that, but you have to, like, the Hebrew audience hearing this is like, what? You named your kids Little Sick One and Annihilation? That, that, that's not a good name to name your kids. There's some foreshadowing going on there. And where do we find out they're from? They're, they're Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathites from Bethlehem, most scholars believe they were probably a well-to-do family. They were probably um, from the upper class, probably had some money. Okay? Okay, but here's what happens. In these first five verses of the story, we see tragedy in Shakespearean proportions. A well-to-do family whose father's name is my God is king takes its pleasant wife Naomi and their two sons sick in annihilation and disobey God by leaving the promised land to sojourn in the land of Moab, the dreaded enemy of Israel and a culture of rank paganism. Okay? And what happens in verse 3? Just abruptly. No, no juicy details. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Did he die of a heart attack? Did he die of old age? Did he get run over by a mule? We don't know. It's just, boom, he died. And she's left with two sons. Okay. You're kind of purposely left hanging. His name's my God is king. He's taken his family to Moab, and he dies. So you have to ask the question, okay, what kind of God is this? Has he abandoned this family? Did they make a huge mistake where, like, they're out of God's will forever, and they're, they're, God's, like, they, you know, God's written them off? Has he taken his invisible hand of grace off this family? Has he left them face the terrible consequences of their disobedience? Well, we're purposely left hanging to heighten the dramatic tension of the story. You don't quite get this, but a widow, she's a widow in a foreign pagan land. What's that going to mean for her? In those days, as a widow, everything is tied to your husband. If your husband, you're not, you're not back with your family. If she would have been in Bethlehem, who would have been there to help her? Her family, her extended family, maybe even a Limelech's family. She's hundreds of miles away in Moab, and all she's left with is, okay, I got two sons. Okay, boys, we got to get going here because you need to take care of me. So here's what you need to do. You need to go find some wives. But again, verse, verse 4, these took Moabite wives. When you think of Moabite women, the first thing in your mind as a Hebrew is, that's not a good thing. 
Moabite women are equated with sexual seduction. They're pagan. You don't take... A good Hebrew boy does not take a Moabite wife. And as a matter of fact, it's against God's law. It's flat out against God's law. In Deuteronomy 7.3, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. It, it is patently against God's moral law in the Old Testament for an Israelite to marry an outside of Israel. Okay? So in their desire for greener grass on the other side, they not only abandoned their homeland, the promised land, but they broke the covenant law. This is a portrait of a family who has made some major compromises instead of trusting in the sufficiency of the Lord to provide for their needs. Now, it's easy to look at them and say, well, you should have just stayed in Bethlehem. Given the situation, who knows? Maybe we would have done the same thing. But what's the point? They should have stayed in Bethlehem. What's it called? House of Bread. Where's it at? Promised Land. What's Dad's name? My God is King. They're not acting as if they're covenant people of Israel. Now let's look at the names of the two wives, because they're important. The one was named Orpah. Orpah means, and this will make sense next week, Orpah means back of the neck, or obstinate one, or stiff-necked one. That's what Orpah means. Strong-willed, back of the neck, Stiff-necked, stubborn, stubborn woman. I'll just tip my hat here. She leaves, doesn't she? And what's the last thing you see of Orpah in the story? Back of her neck. Okay. Ruth's name really comes from a Hebrew root where it means to soak or irrigate or refresh. Her name means refreshment, comfort. Which is apropos for the rest of the story because Ruth is going to be the ultimate sort of source of refreshment for everybody in the story. She's going to be the, the breath of fresh air. She's going to be the source of comfort. She's going to embody um, this irrigation, this, this refreshing, this, um, this source of, of, of helping others. Now, how long do they live there? They live there about 10 years. Now, you may say, okay, that's an incidental bit of information. They live there about 10 years. Why is that important? How did it start out? We're going to go over there and see if things are going to be better. Did they not have the intention of probably what? Coming back. But what has happened? A year's gone by. A year's gone by. A year's gone by. I'm getting comfortable in Moab. Dad's dead. Sons of married women. We're comfortable in Moab. But here's the other thing. The Hebrew audience would have caught on to this quickly, the 10 years. We don't catch it because we don't read our Old Testament enough. This makes even more unlikely that Naomi would ever return home to her rightful place in Bethlehem. In that culture, especially from Genesis 16, which tells us that after 10 years of barrenness, Sarai, Abraham's wife, gave her Egyptian maid Hagar to him to provide an heir. So they would have gone back to the story, okay, 10 years she was barren, 
And then she's tried to manipulate things and got Hagar. The audience would have surely understood 10 years as the customary period given a couple to produce children before they would take any further steps. As a matter of fact, rabbinic <laughs> law established that 10 years of a childless marriage was grounds for divorce. So the number 10 is really a metaphor for the fact that Naomi would not have an heir. What's the problem? What does Naomi need? She needs somebody to carry on the name. So they're married to Ruth and Orpah, and after 10 years, they don't produce children. And then all of a sudden, what happens? What happens to sick and annihilation? Another abrupt statement of verse 5. Both Maclon and Killian died. Don't know how they died. Doesn't give the gory details. We just know their names mean little sick one and annihilation. Little sick one got sick and died. Annihilation died. Okay? So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the worst. This is catastrophic. This is the worst thing that can happen to an Israelite woman. She's a widow in a pagan land. She has no heirs. All she has is two pagan daughters-in-law. Nobody to carry on the name. She's by herself. And it's interesting here, the woman was left without her two sons. Interestingly, here in the Hebrew, it's not the normal word for sons, it's the word babies. She was left without her little babies. Now, obviously, they're grown men, right? Because they've married. But to Naomi, what's she lost? I've lost my husband, and I've lost my little babies. And I'm stuck in a land that I don't really want to be in. It's pagan. My name means pleasant. My name means light and joyful and pleasant. But this is not pleasant. This is the worst thing that can happen to me. Sinclair Ferguson has said this in his commentary. A sharp knife can be a destructive weapon in the hands of a murderer, but it can be an instrument of healing in the hands of a surgeon. Everything depends on the hands that use it. In this case, God is working like a skilled surgeon, but painful surgery is part of the healing process. It's as if God had pierced the, the dagger into Naomi's heart. And so this is tragedy, right? The story, for five verses, how more tragic can you get? It's the time of the judges. It's a time of famine. A man whose name my God is king, who's not acting like God is king, takes his family to where the grass is greener in Moab, which is a place of plague and idolatry. He dies, leaves her a widow. Her two sons marry pagan wives, breaking God's law. They die. She's left childless. She's left grandchildless. She's left husbandless with two pagan women. And she's not in the promised land. And her name's Pleasant. Is that tragedy? So the question then is this. The question is not if you will face tragedy, but when. What happens when you come home from the doctor's office and you tell your grandchildren you've got cancer? What happens when you come home from work and you're, you tell your wife, I got the pink slip today? Or what happens when your parents come in and say, we've been married for 40 years, but we're getting a divorce? 
Or what do you do when your wife comes home and says, you know what, I no longer love you, I'm having an affair? Or what happens when your child comes home and says, you know, I've, I've taken up a, an alternative lifestyle? All these heartaches, all these tragedies. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it happened to Naomi. The Puritans used to call these dark providences. Dark providences. What do I mean by dark providence? Is it just some random thing that happens to you? What's providence mean? God's doing it. Why is it dark? So let me ask you, from our study of Ecclesiastes, guys, does God at times ordain suffering and tragedy to happen in your life? Yes. And is it real? And is it dark? And is it hurtful? And you may be asking the question, I'm sure Naomi is, because we're going to see it here next week. We may ask the question, where's God in all of this? I'm sure Naomi's thinking, Where, where's God in all of this? We may feel as though He's abandoned us. We may feel alone and dejected and angry at our Creator. But the real issue we need to address is how will we face these dark providences in our life? They're going to come. The question is, how are you going to react? How are you going to respond to heartache? How are you going to respond to the piercing knife of loss, pain, and rejection? Is God absent? Is God mentioned in verses 1 through 5? No. God's not mentioned, but is God present? Yes. The invisible hand of God's grace is smiling upon Naomi in the midst of her dark providence. She just doesn't know it yet. So God's going to come through. God's going to orchestrate His plan. So here's the thing we need to realize. Naomi had an experience a frowning providence. A broken woman in a foreign land, destitute as a widow, her son's dead and no heir. This was a tragedy, and yet in the midst of tragedy, behind this frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. No matter what you're going through, if you are a child of God, if you're truly a Christian, God never promises to keep us from pain and suffering, but He does promise to get us through pain and suffering through these hard times. You may not see it. It may be a dark providence. It may be like the dagger's gone into your soul and, and it's like, why again? And you may think, where's God? And all of this. And it may be painful. And you may be asking yourself, why is this happening to me? And that's where Naomi's at. Why would God bring us here to Moab? And she could be very bitter, couldn't she? Why did my husband do this? And then he up and died on me. And then my kids up and die on me. And I've been here for 10 years. I'm going to shake my fist at God. Now she does that next week. When we get to that next week, we'll see she does that. But here's the thing we need to remember, guys. Romans 8, 28-32. We know that for those who love God, all things... Some things or all things? All things work together for what? Good for those who are called according to His purpose. Okay, let's just stop right there. 
This is something we know. Paul says we know it. We don't wish it to be true. We know it. For those who love God, who does that define? That's us, believers. We're the ones who love God. We're the ones who've been called by God. All things, all things. So what? What are the all things? Good things, bad things, good times, bad times. They work together for what? For good. Now let me, let's just pick this apart for a moment. All things work together for good doesn't mean that it's going to feel good at the time. It may feel really painful, but is God working it out for good? And is it purposeless? No, it's working out for His good purpose. Here's the problem. We may not know what the purpose is. You may not know why you're going through it. You may not know what God's purpose is, but what can you know? God is working it out for good and for His glory. And whatever it is that works out... It's what God wants to have happen. And it may be painful. But there's some encouragement in, the ver- in this verse. For those whom he foreknew, he, al- he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God is for you, who can be against you? Now, what do you think Naomi thought? You think Naomi's thinking God's for me? God, you're against me. And as at times as Christians, we may think that, but what's the biblical truth? If you're truly a Christian, is God for you? Yes. Is God going to work out all things for good for you? Yes. Who can be against you? Things can come against you. People can come against you. Situations can come against you. What's the one thing that cannot be taken away from you? Your security in in Christ. And so what's God going to graciously give you? God's going to graciously give us all things. Now, does that all things mean God's going to give you a Ferrari? In the context of that passage, they're the spiritual blessings of being justified and sanctified and foreknown and predestined and glorified, all those spiritual blessings. And what is the result? How can God give us all things? How can God be for us? Because He did not spare His own Son. He gave Him up. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be saved. And as saved believers, God is for us, not against us. He works out all things for our good. It may be painful. It may be tragic. It may be piercing in our hearts. But the one thing we do know is that God is working it out for our good. God's working it out for His glory. And He sent Jesus to die. And He will graciously get you through it. And that's where Naomi is. And that's where we're going to leave. I'm leaving on a cliffhanger. What happens to Naomi? She's destitute. In Moab, she's got two pagan daughters-in-law. What's she going to do? Come back next week and find out. (laughs) Are there any questions or observations or things you want to comment on tonight? We've got got some time. I think sometimes we look at these verses and we think, well, then, you know, it may be painful stuff, but it'll it'll end up all right. But, you know, there were a lot of martyrs. Yep. You know, so we may 
die. You may die. Which, you know, the glory part of that is you're in heaven. Yes. But you don't, while we're existing here on earth, we're not thinking that that, oh, That'll be the answer. Maybe they'll, yeah. they'll be a martyr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Let me get you just a minute, Don. Yeah, we always think that God works out all things for good, and that's, yeah, a happy ending, everything's good. But it could be the good for God's glory is for you to die, or you to die of cancer, to die well, or to suffer through that, or to, I mean, whatever it is, not the happy ending we'd think of. What were you going to say, Don? I think that it's interesting that Naomi's, family, like, what's his name, Elimelech, that they wanted to um, leave Bethlehem because they were fearful, probably, of dying, but then they still died. <laughs> so, I mean, you're still going to die. So staying in God's will or trying to escape something, you know what I'm saying? Like, he had this choice, I'm going to try to keep our family alive, but then they, they still face that same tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Go, where the grass was greener in Moab, what is still like? He's probably thinking, if I go to Moab, things will be better. But what happens? I go to Moab and I still die. So you're still, no matter where you are, you're still gonna die. Okay, Let's, we'll end on that tonight. You're gonna die. Let's go, go home now. No, I'm just joking. Any, just by doing what God yes. is smiling upon yes. trying to take, be your own God. Yes. Better to die in God's will with God as your king than to die doing your own thing with you as king. I mean, Elimelech's real name could be, I'm my own king. I'm, I'm charting my own course here. I'm not going to live in the house of bread. I'm going to go to the Moabite pagan area. And... You're kind of left with a little bit of a question. How did he die? The text does not say it was God's judgment that he died. It just said he died. So we can't make that statement. We can't say it's God's judgment that he died. But it makes you speculate. You never know. The point is, is that the grass wasn't green. Any other questions, comments? or Yes, Bob? Uh, what strikes me is they family moved away from God yeah. and, and then Naomi moves back towards God so in our lives sometimes we could actually literally move away from God Yeah. And, and because I'm sure they didn't have a, a place of worship oh no oh no there, remember guys there, there was probably not a place of worship in think about it this way Bethlehem's only what five miles from Jerusalem we don't even know if Elimelech and his family, when they lived in Bethlehem, went and worshipped. Because it's pagan worship going on. I mean, guys, in my Tuesday morning study, what's the one thing we've seen in Judges? Have we, have, have we seen the priest? Have we seen worship? Have we seen any type of related to temple or tabernacle or any of that stuff going on? No. no. What have we been seeing? Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. So they may not have even... I mean, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but... It's in a time of Israel's history where everybody else around them is. So think about it this way, guys. Israel wasn't probably much different than Moab. It was probably just as pagan. It was still the promised land, but that's the sad thing. Israel had gotten to be so pagan that it was probably culturally, religiously the same as Moab, even though it was outside the promised land because it was a dark time during the Judges.
but it's still the promised land. It's still God's covenant area that he, he ordained for the people to stay in. All right. Anything else? All right. We'll see pleasant turn into bitter next week. <laughs> Naomi. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, great story. Lord, just in five verses we see so much. And Lord, I love the way it ties into judges. And Father, the thing that we want to take away from tonight is that we want you to be our king. That we would have the name Christian, that Christ, you're our king, and that we would do things your way. And we would follow you and not try to chart our own course. And that, Lord, when tragedies happen and when dark providences happen, we would turn to you and we trust in you and realize that all things work out for good and that we would trust in your goodness and your sovereignty. So Lord, help us to um, just do that well and, and to, to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.